Uh, I want to get into today's, to today's teaching time. So we've been talking about uh, life on mission. Uh, some call it witnessing, some call it the Great Commission, or evangelism, or, or sharing your faith, or discipleship. The easiest way I know to explain it is that because of sin, all of us have, have uh, lost connection with God. All of us, some, because of sin, some distance has been created between us and God. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, God's great plan was to redeem all of humanity. That means humans in India and Africa and South America and those, those really cold ones up way up north. And if there's any of those explorers down in Antarctica, that place too. That God's plan is to redeem, to draw all people back to himself. Ephesians says to draw those who are far from God and bring them near. Scripture says this is God's plan from the beginning. And his plan, we believe, has become our mission. We believe that Jesus' last command to go into the world and make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey all the commands of Jesus, to teach them to obey all of the commands of God, we believe that that last command of Jesus is our first priority. Can I get an amen? And this is not just the job of of scholars or professional ministers or theologians, but this is the job of every single one who wears the name Christian. This is our life mission, to draw those who are far from God near. And so that's been where we've been talking about. That's the movement of God's Spirit in our church right now. And uh, man, it's been an incredible ride thus far. Today, I, I want to do something a little bit different in 1963, uh, a man named Robert Coleman wrote a book that has become the gold standard for, for discipleship. He, he, wrote a, he wrote a, not even a textbook, but, it, but it's almost been used that way, a textbook of discipleship in 1963. And this is, this is the impact this book has had. Since 1963, this book, which is called The Master Plan of Evangelism, has published more than 300 or, or three and a half million copies. It's been translated into more than 100 languages and is still in print today. It's not a major book. In fact, I've, I've got a copy here in my back pocket. It's only about 100 pages. Uh, it's a very inexpensive book. You can pick one up on Amazon for five bucks. But this book has had an incredible impact on the world for discipleship. I want to read you the foreword of this book. It says, uh, Few books have had as great an impact on the cause of the world evangelism in our generation as Robert Coleman's The Master Plan of Evangelism. For many years, this classic study has challenged and instructed untold numbers of individuals in reaching our world for Christ, and I'm delighted it continues to be reprinted. The secret of this book's impact is not hard to is not hard to discover. Instead of drawing on the latest popular fad or newest selling technique, Dr. Coleman has gone back to the Bible and has, and has asked one critical question. What was Christ's strategy for evangelism? In so doing, he has pointed us to the unchanging, simple, yet profound biblical principles which must undergird any authentic evangelistic outreach. For that reason, there is a timeless quality to this book, 
And just as it has spoken to men and women for decades, so it now deserves to be discovered afresh by a new generation of Christians who have glimpsed the heartbeat of their Lord for evangelism. May God continue to use this book to call each of us to God's priority for his people, the priority to reach out in love to a confused and dying world with the good news of God's forgiveness and peace and hope through Jesus Christ. That's a pretty profound foreword, right? You know who wrote it? A guy you might have heard of. His name is Billy Graham, one of Robert Coleman's best friends and mentors. So recently... I was watching a, a, this a discipleship forum. It was a group of church leaders from all over the nation that had come together to talk about discipleship and how we're doing as a church and, and are we making disciples? Are we living a life on mission? And, and so it had some new faces and some mostly young faces with cool hairdos and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there was one guy you might have heard of. His name is Francis Chan, another really smart, bald guy. Um, I know, I just lumped myself right in there. Um, it's, not a, it's not fair. Um, but Francis Chan is on this panel, you know, this just awesome guy with heart discipleship. And as I was watching this forum, the, these four or five guys just sat in a circle and talked about discipleship. As I was watching this forum, I, I was like, who is that old guy sitting up there? You know who it was? Robert Coleman. What I want to show you today is, uh, is a little bit different. Uh, I'm not going to preach, but I want to show you... Um, the interview that they do with Robert Coleman, and it's a little bit extended. Um, uh, at, at this point in their interview, Robert Coleman is 86 years old. But what you are going to hear is an 86-year-old man talk with a fire and an enthusiasm about discipleship that, uh, honestly, I just couldn't not show it to you. I know it's a little bit outside of our norm to, to watch a video teaching, but they asked Dr. Coleman, they asked him to, to speak about inten intentionality and strategy and discipleship. And uh, what you're going to see in this video is, is for, for me, it's like what happens in uh, the second chapter of Acts. When, uh, you remember when the disciples are gathered together and they're saying, what do we do next? What do we do next? And the Holy Spirit comes and lands on them. Uh, so Dr. Coleman is only supposed to talk for 15 minutes. But there is a spirit that, that comes, and even the other guys kind of recognize exactly what's going on. There's a spirit of passion for discipleship that comes and sits on this guy's heart, and he just begins to preach the gospel in a powerful, powerful way. So today what I want to do is just I want to show you this, uh, this clip of Robert Coleman, 86-year-old man, uh, who is going to share his heart about discipleship, evangelism, witnessing, sharing the faith. And I encourage you to do this. I encourage you to take notes. Uh, I, I don't usually encourage you, but pull out your bulletin, pull out your phone, pull out a pen, take notes, because what this guy says is incredibly profound. After he finishes, I'll come back up and kind of wrap things up for us today. But uh, sit back, get comfortable, and uh, just prepare yourself for this incredible, this incredible man to speak. All right, guys, go ahead and roll that tape. Well, it follows up from what Jim said earlier about being on a journey You've got to know where you're going, and you've got to know how to get there. And God works by design. He's not haphazard. He always has a plan. He had planned our redemption, the Bible tells us, before the worlds were made. It had already been determined that in the fullness of time, God would come himself in his own person 
in Jesus and bear the judgment, his judgment, for our sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid it all. And when in true repentance and faith, we come to Christ in brokenness and helpless, asking only for mercy, God in his infinite love will save us. And that's the beginning of the journey. Mm -hmm. That's right. But not the end. There's always more to come. And Jesus, as he lived among us, revealed a plan that all of us could follow. And when we become a disciple through repentance and faith, as has been pointed out already, we become a follower of Christ. And we receive more than the message that Jesus was continually teaching. In coming to Christ, we also receive a way that he himself leads his followers. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he knew what he had to do and how he would get there. He knew it would lead to a cross. And the Bible tells us he set his face like a flint. He would not be diverted from that mission. And when he died there, it was finished forever, once and for all. And then, having risen from the dead, before he went back to heaven, he gave his followers one final command. Go, he said, and make disciples of all nations. You baptize them, teach them everything I've commanded, and I'll be with you all the way. That's the beautiful promise of the commission. Well, before I became a professor, I was a pastor. And I served in several states, small rural churches. And I worked hard because I really believed in evangelism. I visited everybody within a mile or two of the church, maybe three miles sometimes. St. R. Center, and I'd try to talk to them about Jesus. And I found out if you just love people and preach the Bible, that the church will grow. And those churches did grow. And somebody gave some money to a seminary and asked, they asked me if I would come and be a professor of evangelism. They didn't know how ignorant I was. I'd never had any <laughs> formal training in it. It never was taught where I'd been in school. But I was, I was honored to come. But not having been trained in that discipline and not being conversant in the literature, I decided my first class would be the evangelism of Jesus. And we would use as our primary text the best book on evangelism ever written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> I knew that they could have a better teacher, but I couldn't get a better textbook. And so our discipline was to read through the Gospels every week and ask the questions, what did Jesus do? And how does that apply to your life? Well, it was easy to see that Jesus was basically 
a personal evangelist, that the good news of the gospel just flowed out of his, of his life and his work. But I began to ask, what's his plan to reach the world? That's what he came for. At the rate he was going, I didn't know how he would finally reach the nations until I began to see in his journey to the cross, he was continually investing his life in some disciples, some learners who were committed to follow him. And as they were with him, they could see how he invested so largely in their lives, getting them involved in what he was doing, checking up as they were involved, to see how they were coming along, building in them that sense of accountability, continually leading them on to a vision of the coming of the kingdom of God when finally the gospel would be proclaimed across the earth and disciples made of all nations. Well, it took me a while to really see that that was his plan. But then when he gave his last command, I realized he's making it clear what he has been doing. And so at the end, before returning to take his place of authority at the throne of heaven, he told his disciples to go and replicate what he had been doing with them. You go and make disciples. They could understand what he was talking about because they had been discipled. They had seen the Great Commission lived out before their eyes. Well, I was a slow learner. But when I saw that, it completely changed my understanding of ministry. Because while I had been busy in evangelism and I'd been busy building a church and I'd had my priorities in the wrong place. And the problem wasn't basically with the people who were aimless and scattered. The problem was with me. I just didn't have a clear plan by which I could direct the priorities of my life. And I realize now I've got to change course and I've got to follow the leading here of the Spirit. And even though I had a lot to learn, I knew the way to go. And it reminded me of what an old Kentucky mountaineer said, I'd rather chase a, a rabbit and not catch him than to chase a skunk and catch him. <laughs> so I resolved, I'm going to start making disciples. <laughs> of course, I was in a different situation now. I was no longer a pastor here. I was a professor. And just a beginner at that. I realized that my situation was different than being the leader of a church. But... The Great Commission was given 
to all of the followers of Christ. It didn't matter whether you were a pastor or a professor or an automobile mechanic or a school teacher or whatever. You were under the mandate of God to obey what he says. Right on. And the command was clear. And I understood my obligation was to make disciples, followers of Christ. And though my context was different, I lived in a little different age and culture than Jesus did, I knew the principles that were underlying his methodology were the same principles that would work today. Methods continually change according to our circumstances. But principles are the same, and they can be guidelines for fulfilling the Great Commission. So, with that as a clue, I began to look for some learners who really wanted to follow the truth that they could understand. In my context now, it was the classroom. And I still remember that first class when I came that day and I announced that I will be in my office in the morning at 6 o'clock. If any of you would like to join me for prayer and Bible study, you're welcome. That's how it began. Just getting a few learners together who wanted to pray and read the Bible with me. And we went through different times and usually though we met in the morning early and there were some circumstances that changed from year to year but for more than 50 years I've been following that same pattern. And those boys now scattered out across the earth and many of them where you find them, they're still scattering the seeds of the gospel and making disciples across the world. Well, I've learned as I've gone along, those principles can be guidelines to follow. And those principles you can see as you look at Jesus carefully. We've already observed that the very nature of a disciple is to be a learner. And so Jesus was looking for persons who had that desire to learn from him. And making a context of learning that would be conducive to growth. And so it began, really, that principle in the Garden of Eden. When God made a man and a woman, performed the first marriage himself in the garden. And then he ordained that that relationship would be the means for populating the earth. And what is so obvious in a physical sense certainly carries over into the spiritual realm. For everything in nature is designed to teach you about the creator. And nothing could be more obvious than we learn most easily in a family context. Now, of course, Adam and Eve in the garden blew their opportunity to raise their kids in the love and the fear of God. But that did not negate the principle 
by which in a family context of love and obedience, you learn most easily. So God from the beginning was giving us an example of how disciples are made. They're made just like you raise kids. And anybody in the world can learn because we've all been born. That's the first requirement. <laughs> and in that context, you can see how the parents have a tremendous responsibility to intentionally raise their children in the fear of God and the love of Jesus. Well, you can keep learning from Jesus as you follow him. One thing is obvious. He didn't travel alone. For the most part, when you see him, these disciples are tagging along. And sometimes there'll be a whole crowd, maybe a dozen, sometimes two or three. Peter, James, and John, for example, seem to have a closer relationship. But that principle of relationship carries over even when you're on a, on a journey. And while they were with him, of course, he was continually teaching them and pointing out great truths. And I saw that. And so I realized I could start taking students with me when I traveled. When I'd go to preach or go out to a meeting, unless it was not possible, I could always take one or two with me. I had an old station wagon. We could fill that thing up with students. <laughs> and my time would pay double. I wasn't losing any time. I'd be driving to that meeting anyway, but I'd have a carload of kids with me. And if the students weren't there, it would be my own kids. And I learned that that way you maximize the opportunity for ministry. And sometimes you, I could find ways for them to help out, then to be involved. Now, you don't always have to be in a religious setting to make disciples. You can do it and have fun at the same time, like going to a ball game or having a round of golf. Who would ever play golf unless they knew they were fulfilling the Great Commission? What a beautiful way to make disciples. Yeah. And you see, that makes everything meaningful. That's right. What's your intention? What's your objective? Well, Jesus says it's to make disciples. It falls into the context of your lifestyle so that it it becomes almost intentional without you realizing it. But you have to be aware of it. It doesn't happen usually by accident. Sometimes it means re rearranging schedules. But if we're not intentional about discipling, very likely not much will be done. You have to have a sense of direction as you live. For nothing is peripheral. It's all part of the plan to make disciples of all nations. Well, I've discovered too that in this journey, sometimes we make mistakes. I remember the time my oldest daughter was going through some struggles in her faith and I wasn't seemingly able to help her. I, 
I did all I could, but I was at wit's end and didn't know what to do except to pray. And you know, sometimes the tough places you go through become the means of God teaching you something otherwise you might not have learned. For then you realize the promise of the Great Commission. You don't ever have to go through a tough place alone. Jesus has promised, I'll be with you all the way. I'll never leave you, never forsake you to the end of the age. Oh, that's a promise that comes into such beautiful fulfillment when you're walking through the valley. Oh, thank you. But I've learned that when you look to the most meaningful and decisive aspect of discipleship, it comes down to prayer. That's intentional. Now remember how Jesus was one day with his disciples. He'd been out preaching and teaching and healing all manner of disease. And of course, a crowd had gathered, a multitude. And when he saw them, he was moved with compassion, as he always was, when he looked at hurting people. And he told the disciples, look at this crowd. They are harassed, they're aimless. They have no sense of direction. They're like sheep. They have no one to lead them, no one like a shepherd. What do you do in that situation? which is so characteristic of many of the large crowds that we see today in our churches. Well, there's an opportunity there. The harvest is there. People have come. They have some interest. They wouldn't be there. He says, here's how to solve the problem. Pray. God loves these people. And you pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to him who gave you that last command. To make disciples and believe that God surely will answer a prayer like that. And he does. And that has taught me that when all is said and done, likely this will be our most decisive ministry in fulfilling the Great Commission. It's intentional prayer which expresses our own sense of helplessness on the one hand, but on the other affirms our faith in a mighty God. Nothing is too hard for him. The greatest chapter in the Bible for me is the 17th of John. You know why? It's the longest recorded discourse of our Lord in prayer. And if you want to know someone well, Learn how they pray. Because that's when the deepest burdens of your soul are likely to be expressed. And as you read those 26 verses, you'll see that half of the prayer concerns those few men that God gave him out of the world. They were yours, Jesus said. You gave them unto me. They were the gifts of the Father. And he earnestly prays that these men might be kept from the evil one. That they might know the full measure of his joy. And he prays that they might be sent into the world even as he was sent of God. And added 
For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified through the truth. The word sanctify means, of course, to be set apart, to consecrate. And for Jesus, he was setting himself apart for the mission for which he was sent. He didn't have any sin from which he needed to be cleansed, which would be true of us. His sanctification, as the context discloses, is for the sake of these for whom he would soon die on the cross. And there, in a few hours, his work would be finished forever. But for these disciples, he's praying that that same commitment that was driving him to Calvary would be the kind of consecration, the kind of sanctification that would give them that same direction, that same sense of priority to make disciples. And indeed, I've discovered that is the deepest dimension of sanctification that I am learning more about. Thankfully, God's not finished with me. <laughs> There's more to learn. Dr. Coleman, I want to... I didn't want to stop you because you seem to be under the anointing there. And, um, now, this is your Bible, isn't it? That is. This is uh, one day we were going over to a seminar in Exponential in Florida, and you said, I can't go anywhere without my Bible. That's right. And then I noticed your Bible. I just want to hold it up. It's got a lot of tape on it. Is that electrical tape? Well, it's just... just Tape I could find around the house. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're sitting up on, we're sitting up there in the chair waiting for the meeting to begin, and and you opened your Bible, and you started turning the pages, and uh, the more you turn the pages, uh, they're they're filled with names. Yeah, those are my boys. And there are hundreds of them. They're right? scattered all over the world now. And I thought, now there's a life yeah. well lived. Well, it's not over yet, thankfully. <laughs> uh, Touche, very good. But you know the beautiful thing about it. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> it works both ways. Yeah. She would have seen him when he was a young man. <laughs> <laughs> but when you pour your life into some men or women, because I've learned, too, women also, I, I had to put into my groups because some women in the school complained that they were oh, yes, not. Uh, so uh, we were going through accreditation, and so I said... <laughs> Political you, know, you know, it turned out the power. women were, were more spiritual than the boys. <laughs> but... I've learned it works for both of us. For when you pour your life into some people and walk through some of their struggles and try to disciple them, you also are being discipled. Mm -hmm. That's the beautiful thing about the Great Commission. It's not only God's plan to reach the ends of the earth through multiplication of men who will follow him and teach others to do the same so that others become disciple makers just as Jesus was a maker of disciples. 
And through multiplication, someday the world will have opportunity to hear the gospel. That's the plan to reach the world, but also his plan to encourage the sanctification of his church. Well, thank you, Dr. Coleman. I want to ask some of these guys to comment. <laughs> Francis, we haven't heard from you. Take it from here. <laughs> I, I don't, I, you, you know. Maybe the only one up here that can I take know, it. No, I don't want to. I didn't want to interrupt. You don't know how much longer he's got. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> here you go. I want to stop, man. So, what do you think? Was that worth 24 minutes of your time? Man, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, and I know what you're probably sitting out there thinking, even right now, like, man, finally, we got some good preaching in this place. Um, amen. Um, some of the things, like, um, I mean, he says a lot. He says so much in that amount of time. If you love people and preach the Bible, the church will grow. You, you can get better teachers, but, but not a better textbook. Jesus' plan to reach the world was through disciples, through learners, and we are all under the mandate of God. For more than 50 years, he's been meeting in the mornings to pray and read the Bible with, with people who are looking to be learners, Disciples are made in the same way we raise kids, and there's principles of discipleship. Maybe your methods change, but the principles are the same. Principles like relationships, spending time with others, taking students on, on, on trips with them, inviting others into their life. Principles like um, you don't have to be in a religious setting to make disciples. What, what better place to fulfill the mandate of God than on the golf course? He talks about this idea of a lifestyle, and a lifestyle is intention without realizing it. It just becomes this part of who you are. But he says, you, but you have to be aware of it, and it doesn't happen by accident. And if we are not intentional, very likely not very much will be done. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And as I invite them back up, I just want to ask, um, ask you one question. As we lean more and more into this idea of discipleship, of of how do we share our lives with others? How do we draw people to Christ? How do we draw those who are far from God near? How do we live out the Great Commission? How do we live a life on mission? Maybe a, a question to ask out of, out of this teaching is how many names are written in the margins of your Bible? How many people did you sit down this week with and share Christ with? What if it's not about um, having a building or a logo or a website? What if it's not about how much our tithe was or even what our attendance is? What if the only question that matters is how many names are written in the margin of your Bible. This is the mission God is calling you to, calling you in the most personal way you can imagine. This is your mission. And so as we wrap up our time together, the last thing he said is that uh, 
discipleship, this idea of discipleship is never going to happen outside of prayer. And in fact, we, we can't just uh, uh, pray casually or lackadaisically. Um, and a prayer thanking God for our food is not going to do it, but we must pray for learners. We must pray for disciples, for ourselves to be drawn near to God, for ourselves to be more like Jesus, to walk closer in his footsteps, to be a learner of everything that Jesus did and imitate those behaviors. And then we must pray for others. Who do you know right now who, is a, who doesn't have a faith? Who do you know right now? That, that doesn't know Jesus? Who do you know right now that maybe they've claimed to be a Christian, but the reality of their life is that they're walking far away from God? This morning, I invite you to pray for them. To pray not just that somebody, somehow, some way would reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ, but pray for them in a way that you accept responsibility. Somehow, in some ways as a church, we have to accept, I have to accept the quality of disciples that we are making. This is the responsibility of your elders. Are we just coming around and playing in church? Are we really, truly grabbing onto the mission of God? Are we making disciples who are making disciples? And so this morning, as we just wrap up our time together, the guys are going to sing a song, and uh, I just invite you to a time of intentional prayer. Maybe pull out your Bibles and write some names in there. Who are you seeking to draw near to God? Who are you looking out after? Who are you intentionally investing in? And, and if there's a way that we can pray for you, then we want that chance too. And this is a time of... Uh, uh, Somehow in our tradition, this time became too stodgy of a time. Uh, we would love for it to be a time where maybe you're ready to give your life to Christ and, and to be a follower, to dedicate yourself to be a learner of his, to be a disciple. And then we want to honor that time. But, uh, but this is also a time where we pray for any need, any care you have. So um, we, we have prayed for pets and we have prayed for homework and we have prayed for any number of things. And so if there is any need on your heart that we can pray for, then this is that time. This is that time. So, I invite you to pray intentionally for those who you know who maybe are far from God. And if there's a way that we can pray for you or serve you, then we want that chance. Why don't you stand as we sing together?